you take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus, that's New Testament, it's right there with all the rest of the T's. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus, alright? And so, um, if you are in your New Testament, you can make your way there. Uh, just want to start this morning by acknowledging that we made it, right? We made it to 2021. 2020 is over. Uh, good riddance, many people say, to that year, and we are here. And here's the thing that I've discovered about 2021 as compared to 2020. Not a lot has changed, right? Pandemic's still raging. I, I, I still look the same. It's, it feels very much like the same world that it was last Thursday. Nothing magically transformed on Friday. Now, perhaps you have started some new routines or some new um, exercises or you've, you know, I saw lots of tweets on Friday of caught up on my Bible reading plan for the year, which was exciting. Maybe you've started some new spiritual disciplines, but in many ways, not a lot has changed. But that doesn't mean that the year ahead doesn't promise lots of change. Even though a lot maybe not have changed From Thursday till today, I'm very excited about this year. I'm very excited about what God has in store for us. I'm excited about the year ahead. I think we have a lot to look forward to. I think we have a lot to be excited about as a church. I look forward to gathering in a more, in a more robust way in the weeks and the months ahead. I look forward to activities that I believe and trusting and praying that God will allow to happen that we have been, that have been part of our, just our culture and who we are. But I'm also looking forward to new opportunities to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. New mission opportunities, new evangelism opportunities, new discipleship opportunities. And we have lots of work to do. Lots of work to do on ourselves just because it hasn't changed radically in two or three days doesn't mean that we all, some of us in this room or most of us in this room don't have goals for the year ahead, don't have things that we have in mind that we would like to see happen that we are putting into motion even now and think about the possibility that is there. Work for our church. There are lots of things that God has revealed, that God has shown me even in the last few weeks as I've taken some time to really focus on what is the goal of this church, what is the mission of this church, what are the things that are hindering us as a church from accomplishing what God has called us to do. And I'm praying through. I think that God's going to reveal some of that even more in the year ahead. And it's a transitional kind of time to think about what does the future look like? What does this new reality look like? How do we get there? Lots of work ahead for our community to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because no matter what else changes in our world, the reality that we must all encounter and realize is that our neighbors and our friends and our families that do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are destined for an eternal separation from God. And as a church and as individuals that ought to drive us for the glory of his name, for the sake of his kingdom, and for the health and well-being spiritually of our neighbors, that we have work to do in the year ahead. And last week we talked a little bit about that, the Exodus story. If you weren't with us or you can join us um, in that in-between week, we talked about the story in Exodus where Moses has the Israelites literally between a, in, an army that is coming upon them and a sea that is not going to change, at least by their count. 
And as they're there, Moses begins to pray and they talk about the people are complaining. And Moses says to God, God, wait, you're going to do some things. And God says to him, basically, stop praying and get moving. Do what I've told you to do. And we talked at the end of last week about the fact that there are things that God has told us to do. We don't have to pray about. We don't have to think about. We just follow along in obedience. But before we get ourselves to work, before we roll our sleeves up proverbially and get going, today I want to pause just for a moment and talk about two things that we must have in order to do what God has called us to do. That if we're going to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish, there are two things that we must hold on to, that we must remember, that we must take with us if we're going to accomplish what God is going to accomplish. And they're both theological concepts, but they're deeper than that, and they are practical in their nature. And that's where Titus chapter 2 picks up. Now, by the way, I just want you to know this, this passage was... I was looking through of several things, thinking about this week. We're actually going to start next Sunday. We're going to start an eight-week series in the book of Philippians, where we're going to walk through the book of Philippians. I'm really excited about that. If you, the theme of Philippians, if you have a theme, is joy. It's a joyful book. It's a, a book of excitement and what God is doing. So I'm really excited for us to walk through that book together over the next couple of months. And I was trying to think through how do we set the table for that. And I landed on these few verses just Four verses here in Titus chapter 2. And I began to research and look around for them. And it was interesting because they are not verses that are talked about a whole lot. And they are amazing verses. In fact, I do research through commentaries and online. And I look at other pastors, what they may have preached or talked about. And I went looking at my normal kind of spots. And I couldn't find a pastor that had preached on this passage of scripture. I was like, well, maybe I'm picking a bad passage or something. I did find one, finally, and he did a six-week series on four verses. I'm not doing that. All right? We're going to do it all in today. But these are amazing verses. Just listen to what it says, starting in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all our lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Now, here's where the setup is, and here's what you need to know. The book of Titus is what we call one of the pastoral epistles. This is where Paul is writing to young pastors, Timothy and Titus, about exactly what it is that they ought to be doing in leading a church. Titus is in a place called Crete. Now, you may have heard of Crete over in the European arena over there near Italy and Crete and all that stuff. There's an island nation. It was considered a lawless island nation. The people of Crete were called Cretans. They were people that were known to not tell the truth, that were known to steal, that were known to rob, that were known to be less than honorable in their dealings with other people. And in the midst of that, the gospel begins to take root, and Titus is their pastor. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus and he's saying, this is what you need to tell the people. This is what you need to teach the people. And as he's doing that in chapter two proper, the first part of this, uh, he gives the list of people and what they are to be doing in order to fill out the Christian life. That if you're an older man, if you're a younger man, if you're a master and if you're a servant, like these are the things that you ought to do to live out the Christian life. And then you get to verse 11, and in an opposite of what Paul normally does, normally Paul gives you the doctrine, the reason, the gospel, and then the work out of it. In this particular place, he says, here's the work I want you to do, kind of like I did last week. Here's the work God's called us to. He's called us to evangelize. He's called us to be a neighbor to the people around us. He's called us to love one another. He's called us to to be a disciple of his. He's called us to learn. He's called us to lead. He's called us to do all those things. And now, here's the theological underpinning or the basis for what we're going to do. He tells the right conduct to age groups about here's how you ought to be doing. Here's what you ought to be doing. Here's how you ought to be living. And then he says, and here's what will sustain you in the midst of it. So just a minute ago when I talked about those two things that we need to carry with us, in reality, these are the two things that will sustain us in 2021 as we do the work of the Lord. And the first thing that we see that is absolutely essential for us to do the work that God has called us to do is we must remember and recognize and hold on to grace. I love in this passage the robust understanding of grace. Several years ago, one of the first um, ministries that was turned over to me, I was a college student at Union University and... um, I uh, was given uh, the college ministry there, uh, interviewed with who would become my future father-in-law. He was not my father-in-law at that time, but Phil Jett, and he put me in college ministry. And while I was in college ministry doing that for the last year or two of my time at Union, one of the things that was interesting was in our church, they started an Awana group. Amy, have you ever been a part of an Awana group? All right, so we started an Awana group. They'd never done it in Inglewood. And uh, another thing that's... that's uh, Interesting is that the person that started the Iwana group has connections to Doc Hagen here at this church, is in his family. And so we didn't know that. I didn't know, I didn't know Doc Hagen at that time. You know, I was a college kid. And so the, he comes and, and my father-in-law says, well, y'all be great to do Iwana. We just don't have any workers right now. And he said, well, can I take the college kids into it? I said, sure. So Susan and I were assigned a group of kids to do Iwana with. And I'll never forget sitting there with this group of kids sitting around, and there was a kid in that group that had a particularly deep voice for his age, like an unnaturally deep voice. It was kind of cute. It was, you know, he's a young guy, and it was deep, and he could make it even deeper. And I remember saying, hey, somebody tell me what grace is. And he just came out with, grace is the name of a girl I know. All right, that's not it, all right? We asked the question, what is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And in this passage, I just want you to think about what it says in just three or four verses about what grace does for us. 
It brings salvation. It teaches us to say no to sin. It teaches us to live in a righteous and godly manner. And it teaches us to live expectantly in the meantime. Now we're going to break those down a little bit at a time. But I want you to think about all that grace does in our lives. It is this unmerited favor. This gracious intention. It is nothing that we have done. But it is God's good fortune given to us. Not based on who we are or what we have. It is too good to be true. I know that if you have email in this room, you have gotten an email similar to the one I'm about to describe. Where it starts by saying, dear sir or madam, there has been a fortune left for you. And all you have to do is send some information to this bank and they will send you the money to yours. And hopefully you've gone, oh, that's not true. Why? Because it's too good to be true, right? Like we've come to recognize again, just by the way, just as curiosity, as I was thinking about this, I thought, I wonder how many of those I've gotten since the new year. Man, have I got any since the new year? I look at my spam folder, 10 I've gotten since the new year. And according to those somewhere out there in the ether, I guess, I have $53.6 million waiting for me. So y'all have a great life. I'll see you sometime else, right? Like it's too good. We know that's not right. We haven't done anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to it. It's just sitting there. And it's not real money, by the way. Let's all, right, okay? I don't want anybody going home and starting to email people and give them money, all right? It's real. It's scam. But we recognize that kind of thing. It's like, well, that's not true because nobody gets something for nothing. That's the way we're raised, right? You don't get something for nothing. And yet what grace is, is getting the absolute greatest gifts we can imagine For nothing on our behalf. It is God's unmerited favor. And this is what it says in this passage. I just want us to kind of walk through it. Because it says the grace of God. So it's not just anybody out there. It's the grace of God has appeared. What's interesting about that particular passage and what's interesting about that particular moment is that there is no doubt that what is being described there is the first coming of Jesus that we just celebrated in Christmas. Here's what I love about this. Grace in this instant is not some theological concept. It's not some grand experiment It's not some in-the-sky theologians and scholars trying to imagine it. Grace is described here as Jesus. Brian Chappell says that Jesus is grace embodied and he is the fullness thereof. When it describes grace, it doesn't describe, here let me give you multiple different understandings of it. It says grace has appeared. And the wording there cannot be mistaken. It is that grace has come in the birth of Jesus Christ. It has appeared for us. It has come to earth. Grace is instilled, embodied in a person, not ideas. God, when it came time to demonstrate his love for us, his grace for us, he did not drop a scroll out of the heavens into a secure location. He came himself in the person of his son, Jesus. I mean, John chapter 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All that was created was created through the Word. That's an amazing thought. But then you get this 
John 1.14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The grace of God is demonstrated in the incarnation, in the coming of His Son, Jesus. Not only did He just kind of stop for a moment on earth either, that phrase that He came, that He became in the flesh for us is literally he tabernacled or he stayed or he moved into our neighborhood. And so this grace that we must have and understand is grounded in, demonstrated by the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he is, it tells us in that thing, that he came full of grace and truth. But then it tells us what he came for. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared doing what? Bringing salvation for all people. God's power and grace is demonstrated with immeasurable love. God's favor appeared with the saving power. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, we can be made right with God. This grace that appeared in Christ came to save us. The purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of Christmas, and all the joy that we celebrate and sing about, and the presents that we give, and the trees that we put up, and all that we do, all of that happened in celebration of Jesus coming, and Jesus came to bring salvation. Verse 14 tells us exactly what that was. It tells us that He gave Himself for us. Not only did He come, but eventually He went to the cross for us to redeem us, to buy us back from all lawless, to cleanse us for Himself, a people that is His own possession, eager to do good works. He came to purify us, to redeem us, to do the good works that He had called us to do. One of the things that we must hold on to as we do the work of God. It's not easy in the world in which we live always to do the work of God, to speak the truth of God, to live out the love of God in our community. But in the midst of that, we remember because of grace and what has happened in our lives, we are a people who have been ransomed. That word means to be bought back from captivity. We have been cleansed and made Pure. We are treasured as God's treasure people, His possession. And we have been commissioned to do the work that He's called us to do. Grace reminds us that God looked down upon us and said that we, although unworthy, were worth enough to Him that He would send His Son to die on the cross to Buy us back from the debt that we could not pay. To cleanse us from the unrighteousness in our own lives. To give us a hope and a future as his treasured possession with a commissioned purpose in life. This grace that has appeared for our salvation is for all people. It echoes that Luke chapter 2, right? For today I have for you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. 
That was unique to the understanding of gods in that time. It's not unique to God. God has been about that from the beginning. But to the understanding of what they do, usually they would say, for the Israelite people, or that I have come to bring salvation for your clan, or your tribe, or your people. But throughout Scripture, it is not that. It is for all people. And we talk about it every week, it seems like. All means all. What that means is that God's grace is available. Now, this isn't some universal understanding where God has automatically saved everybody. That's not what Scripture teaches. What it's saying is that His grace, His mercy, His love, His salvation, being ransomed and cleansed and treasured and commissioned is available for every single person that walks the earth. Scripture tells us that His goal, His desire is that for all people to come to salvation. And so that means no matter who you are, no matter who your neighbor is, no matter what your family member may have done, God intends and desires to save them. No matter who you are, if you're watching today, you're in this room listening and you think that you have fallen too far away from what God would require of you. If you think that God would never love me, God can never, the God that I've heard about can never like me or whatever that may be. Here's the reality. Our God's grace and mercy is available to every single person all means all so no matter what your family life is or where you grew up or what mistakes you've made or what mistakes you are making what plans you have had that have fallen apart or have gone forward the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation that's important as we move forward into the year for several reasons The first is that we don't have to carry around the baggage of our past into our future. And every one of us in this room have had things happen in our lives, have made decisions, have made statements to our family, to our friends, have taken actions. And in the midst of all of that, there are things that we regret and that we wish we could take back. And while we may still deal with some of the consequences of those things, Scripture teaches us that we have been redeemed and cleansed and are now treasured and commissioned. We can leave the guilt and the shame of our sins in the past. Now, you don't have to have a new year to figure that out and to do it. Scripture teaches us that His mercies are new. How often? Every morning. Now, that's not to say that, well, you pile up a bunch of stuff today, and if you died 1159, it wasn't forgiven. It just means that it is continually being refreshed in our lives. And every moment can be a new start, a fresh start for us. Scripture says, then, that grace has taken care of our past. But here's the amazing thing. It then tells us that it's taking care of our future. Verse 12 says that for the grace of God has appeared. And then it gives us first that it's bringing salvation for all people. And then it says secondly, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. The word instructing us there is like tutoring us. It's teaching us. It can also be used, by the way, and sometimes instruction is this way, in disciplining us. 
And the point it says here is that there are two things that is instructing us and helping us. So the grace of God not only saves us from the past, but now in the present. By the way, that instructing us is a present word that means that it is ongoing, continually, always working in our lives. As Christians, we talk about the fact that we have been justified of our sins, that Christ has saved us from our sins. We talk about the fact that Christ is saving us. We call that sanctification, where he is working on us to make us into the people that he has called us to be. This is the sanctification process, the instructing us process and he tells us there are two things that are here first of all he says that he is teaching us instructing us to say no to godlessness and the worldly lust and to say yes to a sensible righteous and godly life very straightforwardly it's teaching us what to say no to and what to say yes to and the idea is that the farther we move down our path of discipleship with the Lord, it becomes more and more evident and easier to say no to the bad things and good to the godly things. I'm afraid that one of the things that we have lost in much of our modern American Christianity is the ability to discern between what is good and profitable and what is not. We have become these people that allow our freedom, and we have freedom in Christ, to move us into places where we think that we can imbibe in and take part in and go along with much of what the culture is, much of what your culture is watching, much of what the culture is saying, and it won't impact us because we have been saved. And yes, our ultimate justification is tied once and only to the resurrection from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But we have to be willing and learn to say no. That's not profitable. That's not good. That's not right. That's not going to benefit me or my family or my walk with the Lord in any way. Now, what I think is fascinating here, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of Greek kind of grammar here, but one of the things that's fascinating here is that when it talks about the things that we need to say no to, it uses a participle to do that. And when it talks about the things we need to say yes to, it uses a main verb. Now, here's why that matters. The participle is the secondary thing. And so what it's telling us is it's much more important to learn what to say yes to than it is to learn to say no to. Because as we say yes to the things of God, gradually those things that are not beneficial will move out. And it gives us three areas that it's important to say yes to. First of all, to ourselves, that we live sensible or self-controlled lives, that we are constantly monitoring how we live. Secondly, that we live righteously with others, that it is a relationship that has to happen. And then we live godly lives that is directed towards the Lord. And it's fascinating to me that it talks about once our past has been taken care of justification, the Spirit of God begins to instruct us about what not to do and what to do. And it reminds us that the power of the Spirit of God is here and now, not just there and then. Not just in our past and in the future, but He is with us now. And that we live in a significant situation where the spiritual warfare of God is currently happening. And we must be willing to listen to the Spirit, instruct us how to say no to the things that need to be said no to, and to say yes to the things of God. And here's the cool thing about that. is As Max Lucado says, the voice that calls us to change is the same voice that gives us the power to pull it off. How? How does that happen? 
What happens, first of all, because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the spirit of the living God is inside of you, reminding you of his goodness and his mercy and giving you wisdom about decisions that you make. And it also happens because the more we know and understand the grace of God, the truth of God and who he is, the more we have the reason and the desire to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. It's just like my relationship with Susan. The more involved I am in doing the things that God has called me to do, to, t- to love my wife, to be a part of her life, to get to know her, even as we've been married, be 23 years this summer, still learning and working and trying to find out the ways that God has called me to love her best. When I am actively engaged in that, it is easier to say no to the things that would damage our relationship and yes to the things that encourage it. And when we begin to drift or things begin to get a little more difficult, it becomes easier to say no to the things that would harm our relationship. And it becomes harder to say yes to those things that would help it. And so in this year, as we are doing what God has called us to do, we have to remember that it is His grace that will give us the strength to do it. There's a little thing at the end that leads us to the second word that we have to hold on to in the midst of this. And it says simply this. It says, while we wait. That's at the start of verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope. Second thing that we have to hold on to if we're going to make it through 2021 is not only the grace of God that is holding us, but the hope that we have in him. He uses two phrases to describe that hope. First is the blessed hope, which means the unseen but sure, the not yet realized spiritual blessings that we will possess in the future with Christ. But then it also talks about the glorious appearing that he will have. And so you have these two things that that one day... That Christ is going to return and his return. We are going to have these spiritual blessings that we've been promised. Perfection in who we are. A new body. A new life. A life in the midst of him and a world we cannot imagine. No eye has seen. No ear has heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. But there's also this glorious appearing where Christ and the Father and the Spirit will be validated and recognized for who they are by all people. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At some point in the future, and hopefully it's the near future, I'd love it if 2021 is the coming of the Lord's time. At some point in the future, hopefully the near future, the sky's going to split and he's going to return. And when he does, all the people that doubted, all the people that criticized, all the people that made fun are going to bow. It's a small comparison, but I think of it in some ways like we, the Titans, for instance, are playing this afternoon. They win, they go to the playoffs, and if you remember last year, they were the underdog team. Nobody expected to do anything, and they almost made it to the Super Bowl. And I remember after each of those games, I'm a... Titans fan, I like the Titans, live here 
you know, I follow them. They're not my life, but I really like them. And so every time they won, the next morning I would turn on all the sports talk shows. Because I wanted to hear them validate how good my team was. Now, if they lose, which has happened a lot with like well, Tennessee football, I don't watch any of that. Because I don't want them to validate how bad they are. Right? But like if they win, so if the Titans go out and win today, and let's say they win next week, and they win, and they're suddenly on that roll again, everybody's talking about Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill, and they're talking about how good the Titans are. Remember the Titans? We, fought, we slept on the Titans. What's going on with the Titans? You want to watch it go, yeah, I'm validated in my fandom about this team. I have nothing to do with their success, but I like to think that I do. The ultimate validation party is coming. And all those people that have doubted the truthfulness of who God is, who have smeared his name, that have done heinous acts against him, or even those that have done it in his name, will realize they were wrong. And that our God will reign and is reigning supreme. It will finally be recognized for all time. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 tells us about it, and I love it because it talks about the fact, it gives us just the idea that Christ is going to return, we will be transformed, that we will experience fellowship with both believers that are still alive and those that have gone on before us in an amazing way, and that we will spend eternity with the Lord. Man, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. Because when we believe Jesus and behold His grace... We are empowered to live the lives that God has given us to live and to wait for the coming of the Savior. And I am excited for that day to come. As we venture into 2021, there's a lot of work that we have to do for ourselves, for the church, for our community. But in the midst of that, we've got to carry with us the grace of God that's going to empower us to do it the whole time. And we're going to have to carry with us the hope that comes only through Jesus Christ. My prayer is that as we go, we will go forth together in unity under the banner of our King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the chance that we have to live a life that you've called us to live. To be able, Lord, just to do what you've called us to do. Understanding that you're providing the power and the grace and the mercy to do it. That you've given us a hope of a future that is secure with you. That you have taken care of our past. Where we do not have to worry about the guilt and the shame that comes from our past. We pray, Lord. That we would just be willing, as we talked about last week, to do the things that you've called us to do. Without hesitation. Without worry. And that we'll do it full of grace full of hope. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has never accepted your grace, that have never received that, Lord, that's still living with the guilt and shame that comes from walking away from you and being people that have sin in our lives, Lord, that you would allow them today to make that decision to follow you. Lord, I pray that they would seek out Someone that can help them walk through that process, whether that be myself or whether it be somebody that they trust spiritually in their lives. 
And Lord, that they would accept that grace that comes from you. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be willing to do whatever you called us to do. That you'd be willing to... Lord, that you would show patience to us as we navigate and discern. And Lord, that in the midst of that, when we go, Lord, that you would empower us in the ways that you've called us to. We desire nothing more, Lord, than to be the church that you've called us to be, doing what you've called us to do for the purpose and the reason with the motivation that you've called us to do it. Most of all, Lord, we pray that we will glorify you with everything we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.